I had uh, hoped to jump back into 1 Corinthians 15 this week and did quite a bit of prep for that, but I had a busy week. I wasn't feeling uh, ready to jump back in this morning, and so uh, I'm going to go to a passage that is one of the most familiar passages to me. It's one that I've taught on the most. It's one that I have used in counseling the most. And I want to use this as a teaching time where you're, you, you can uh, ask questions. And it just so happens uh, when I got here this morning that um, it dovetails really nicely with what Mike Riccardi will be preaching on during the second service. He's going to be preaching on uh, Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And he's doing part two of a, a series that he started some time ago in January. But... Um, uh, I would like to draw your attention to Luke chapter 17, and I would like to talk about different steps we take when it comes to forgiveness and different excuses that we have sometimes on why we don't forgive. And so if you're looking for an outline this morning, it's going to be three steps to forgiveness and three excuses on why we sometimes don't forgive. Uh, our passage is Luke 17. It's going to be verses 3 through 10, but I'm going to go ahead and start reading in verse 1. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's coming from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. When we look at our passage and we come to verse 3, we notice that it begins with a word. Um, and the, the word is be on your guard. It's translated be on your guard. Look out. Beware. And uh, this, this could apply to the previous verses. The previous verses uh, included a warning to unbelievers. Uh, it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in, you cast into the sea than for you to uh, cause a little one to stumble. The word little one is one that Christ often used to describe young believer. doesn't necessarily mean it's a child, but a, a young believer. And he considered his believers to be his little ones, his his children in the faith. And so um, when, uh, when we see our Lord uh, put that strong rebuke and warning, I mean, it's very possible that it, he could have said that right after they had witnessed an execution of a prisoner. In, in ancient times, uh, millstones uh, were, looked like, um, uh, the most common one was a, um, it looked like a, a cone that would come up off, out of the ground that they would, char uh, you know, carve out of a rock, sometimes a volcanic rock like basalt, and they would, it would be very abrasive. And then there would be a, so a, like a cylinder cone 
I don't know, a cylinder is different than a cone. Cylinders, yeah, but a cone, you know, you're like an upside down ice cream cone, right? Uh, and then, and then over that would be another one that was shaped like an hourglass and carved out in the middle. And so the hourglass fit right on top of that and they would put the grain in there and then they would spin it around and the grain would fall in between the cracks of those two cones that are uh, on top of each other and then it would come out the bottom. But if you can imagine one of those, that hourglass cones cracked, it would be useless. It, would be, it wouldn't be, couldn't be used anymore because it couldn't hold grain. And so uh, there was another type of uh, more industrial um, uh, um, millstone, and that would be shaped like a tire for a car or sometimes as large as a bus tire. And it would be carved out of rock and it would have a square hole in the middle and then it would have a bar coming out of it and it would go around a rock track, a tiny circle, and they'd put their grain in it. Maybe the town would have a mill like this and it would be a, a communal uh, mill. And sometimes if it was really big, they would have an animal that would be tied to the bar and the animal would go in a circle and it would just crush over that. And again, if that round truck tire made out of stone cracked or split in half, it would be tough to find a use for it. But the Romans found a use for it and that that use was to tie a rope around it, go to a shallow end of uh, a sea and announce to the people... um, not too shallow. It'd have to be deep enough for someone to drown. But they would they would be out there on, on a boat, and then they would uh, announce to people the person's crime. They would throw the stone over the side of the um, of the boat, and then the person's neck would be tied to the stone as well. And so he would rapidly follow the stone. And um, the uh, in the in the late I think it was uh, 1980s or early 1990s. Where there was a drought in uh, around the Sea of Galilee area, and so the Sea of Galilee receded its banks further than it had in decades, and so they did a lot of excavation. And one thing they found were lots of millstones out in those sections that were um, that were there. So uh, it's quite a, a, just a, an aggressive rebuke. It, it, it's to be able to use that, say that kind of punishment is better for you than you to cause someone else to sin. It's a harsh warning to those who cause other believers to sin, probably directed especially at unbelievers. But then he turns his attention and he uses you know, this word, um, be on your guard, if your brother sins. So this is a warning to Christians. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And that's step number one. Step number one is confront. Step number one to, uh, to actually gr- getting to the point of forgiveness is to confront um, and notice that uh, step number one is not what we naturally think about doing. When somebody offends us and they really harm us, um, they, they, um, we tend to get bitter, get angry. Uh, we tend to um, gossip, to tell other people, you won't believe what this person did to, for, to me. Or we can spiritualize our gossip and said, hey, we should pray for this person. You, let me share with you what they did to me. And so those are the step ones that I think we sometimes naturally take. We, we, we wallow in self-pity. We stew in anger. We allow bitterness to, to take hold. Um, and that's not the step one here. The step one is to confront, to rebuke. There are two Greek words in the original that are translated as rebuke in English. One of them means to prosecute a case against someone. It's a harsher of the word. It's like being in, it's a harsher word than this one. It's, it's uh, like being in court and saying, you're guilty. Um, and that's not this word. This word can be used strongly. It's the same word that is used of Jesus when he rebuked the wind and the waves. But 
it, it, by definition, it is to rebuke cautiously, tentatively, and with a desire to bring about a change. Uh, I, I tell the illustration, I've shared it here before, of uh, w- when I was in seminary, I was a, a, a substitute school teacher, Long Beach Unified School District, and uh, I ended up taking a long-term sub-job teaching a first-grade class straight out of seminary, which I highly recommend for all seminarians. First grade brings you back down to uh, a really teachable uh, level. And um, so... Uh, I was teaching first graders how to read and do math, and I remember one day I was helping a girl named Misha. I was leaning over her desk, and um, I was helping her with her math, and she says to me, Mr. Beattybach, and I said, yes, and she goes, when you talk, your mouth smells bad. (laughs) But she said it, you know, cautiously, tentatively, with a desire to bring about a change. It's a good reminder of what this word really is. It, she, was, she was confronting me. She was trying to keep it quiet and be private about it. Um, I was appreciative. I went to the desk and got some breath mints and, and took, I don't know, half a pack or whatever. So, so uh, I just remember that, um, uh, you know, it's important to confront. And I know that there are people out there who say, you know, that you should... Um, you know, don't say anything, you know. You have to realize that if you love somebody and you see something and they are a brother or sister and you think to yourself, if I were doing that, I would want that someone to confront me, um, then, then I think you need to take that courage and confront them, um, it's difficult. It's awkward. Sometimes you might preface it by saying, this is going to be awkward. I'm, I'm putting our friendship on the line. I know that you might not want to hear this. I don't necessarily want to say this right now, but I feel obligated to because I would want you to say the same thing to me if you saw it in my life. So I'm coming to you in love, and, and this, is, this is what I'm, I'm sharing with you. There's a, there's a quote that I have from Jonathan Edwards that I carry with me in my little, little thing of of quotes, and I think this is also essential if you're going to confront someone else. It says this, Edwards, this is one of his resolutions. He said, resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and doing as if nobody had been so vile as I. And if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and miseries to God. And I think that if you are looking at someone else and you have the attitude of how could they possibly do that? How, you know, how could they? I can't, I'm astonished. Then you're not looking at your own heart and you're not looking at your own capacity for sin and your own sin before God because we are all sinners before God. And so if you're able to look at yourself and see yourself as just as much of a sinner, indeed, you're a, you know more of your own sin than you know of their sin. And so you should have a sense of, of real humility in coming to them. This is not about pointing something out and saying, aha, you see. This is really genuinely trying to humbly come before someone and confront them. Step number one is confront. Step number two is forgive. Take a look at our text, verse three. Luke 17, 3 says, 
Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So I think it's very important at this point to start with some definitions. All right? And I want to, because definitions are, are extremely important. Um, uh, I want to differentiate between things that people often throw into the bucket of forgiveness that are different than forgiveness. And in so doing, we'll also define forgiveness. Okay, so first of all, harboring bitterness. Harboring bitterness is different than, than a lack of forgiveness. Harboring bitterness is something that is selfish, that is wrong. It is always sin. It's a lack of trust in God because God will bring vengeance. And if we think that we need to stew on it or be bitter about it, it's a misunderstanding of our own sin and it's being the unmerciful servant and which we'll hear, hear about later in, in Mike Riccardi's message. So um, really that, that bitterness, there's no place for that in the Christian life. But in addition to that, there needs to be a willingness to grant forgiveness. And every Christian should have a willingness to grant forgiveness. That should be something that is always you're ready to do. Like if this person repents, notice it's a conditional clause in verse um, uh, three of, of Luke 17. If he repents, if he repents, a conditional, it's conditional forgiveness. So we always must be willing to forgive. The whole reason we confront is to win them over, it says in Matthew 18. So Matthew 18, verse 15. That's why we go to them just between the two of us in love to win them over. If your desire is anything but to win them over and have that, that sweet relationship and fellowship again, you have a wrong desire. So we have uh, harboring bitterness, which is always wrong, a willingness to forgive, which is always required. There can be anger. I want to separate anger. And anger uh, can be righteous indignation or unrighteous indignation. And uh, I've been angry plenty of times. Uh, I don't know that I ever can say I've had righteous indignation fully. Righteous indignation is when you are angry about what upsets God, what is not honoring to God. And most of the time when we express anger towards someone, it's, you did this to me. You violated my rights. Someone who understands the gospel understands that I'm a sinner, that I've asked for forgiveness, that I've, I've asked the Lord to forgive me of all my sin, that I've repented, I've turned from my sin, that I'm ashamed of my sin. I've asked him to wash that sin away. I've trusted in his righteousness, not my own righteousness. And I realize that my sin, the wages of sin is death. I realize that that sin is worthy of eternity in hell. And so what I deserve today, this very day is not to be alive, not to be treated kindly. I deserve God's wrath. And yet by his grace and his mercy, he has allowed me and spared me. And so I am actually in the wrong when I say things like, I don't deserve to be treated like this if I think I deserve to be treated better. Because the reality is, I deserve to be treated worse. And so when we think about um, uh, anger, we need to realize that we need to repent of our anger. Uh, unless we truly are just saying, Lord, this sin does not please you, and my heart aches, and I start to get passionate and have this, this, this just this disgust 
over a sin which doesn't honor your name, and it's because of you. And if you can say that, you're leaning more towards righteous anger. So we have uh, this, uh, this idea. We've defined what it means to harbor bitterness, what it means to um, be willing to forgive, uh, what it means to um, uh, be angry. And then there's the granting of forgiveness. The granting of forgiveness is, can be transactional. Um, it, is a, uh, it, is, it, it is an instantaneous one-time event. That is to say, it is not necessary. It's not a process. When you say, I forgive you, the word forgive here in this, in this text, um, well, let me ask you this. What are some definitions of what it means to forgive? What are, what, what are some that you've heard? Share, share with me some. I, I know you've heard this is a familiar word to you. This is not the first time, right? Choose not to remember. So that would be an active way of stating it as opposed to um, uh, an, a, a, a passive way of staying. A pa- Sometimes people say, well, you forget. Forgive and forget. Lewis Smedes wrote a book called Forgive and Forget. Uh, we don't forget. Somebody really hurts you. It's hard to forget. You don't just say, oh. And God doesn't forget. God doesn't, you don't do something against God. He's like, oh, yeah, Who, what's your name again? He knows the hair on your head. He cares about you more than the sparrow. I mean, this is the God, the creator, the almighty, the infinite, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, all-loving. He knows everything. Yet somehow he's able to actively separate your sins from you. And the word afemi, which is the word for here for forgive, to means to separate. And it means to, to, um, to, 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 yeah, actively not remember. Um, uh, he said in Isaiah 43, uh, I will remember your sins no more to Israel. Somehow God can actively choose to not remember. Um, uh, in the Psalms, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. So when you grant someone forgiveness, you are promising them. You are saying, I separate this. I will not bring this up in a way to make you feel the sting of your sin. We used to have an expression in my household that I would hear my parents say from time to time when they granted forgiveness. They would say, I forgive you and I promise I will never dig up these bones to make you smell them again. Just a graphic way of making sure that you knew that I, what I was saying when I said, I forgive you. I'm burying it. It's a one-time thing. It doesn't mean you may never talk about it again in the future, but you'll never talk about it in a way to make them feel the sting of that sin. You might say, hey, you remember that time that we uh, had that discord? I'm so glad that things are at peace now. And now you've brought it up, but you didn't bring it up in a way to, to try and drag them through it again. Um, so um, uh, when we talk about forgiveness, though, it is also important to somehow speak about covering over because I believe that the essence of forgiveness is covering over sin. Love covers over a multitude of wrongs. Blessed is he whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered. And when you think about that passage and you think about the parallel statement there, you have to make a decision as to whether or not um, Uh, covering over of sin is different than forgiveness or whether it's parallel. Blessed is he whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered. 
I think they're synonymous. I see a lot of overlap between them. There are good biblical counselors here at this church who disagree, and that's okay because we all say the same thing at the end of the day, but there are those who believe, and Jay Adams would be one of these uh, in his book, uh, From Forgiven to Forgiving, but he believes that um, uh, there's a difference between covering over sin and forgiving sin. He sees forgiveness as always transactional. I see forgiveness as sometimes being unilateral and unconditional. He doesn't see it that way because he defines forgiveness differently. He defines forgiveness as a transaction, whereas I define forgiveness as separating it, but it can be done uh, by covering it over, by, by, by removing it, by separating it. Um, and so, uh, and, and when, you look at, when you look at that, uh, that the end result of that, what that means is, so um, let's say, especially if it's petty or if it's small. I mean, if we confronted everybody for every time that they sinned against us, we'd be the most painful people on the on the planet, right? You know, your wife says to you uh, something, you know, and and you say you say, oh, you know, forgive me, you know, and then you and then you you say it kind of harshly. And she says, well, now I'm offended by the way you said it, you know, and you say, oh, well, forgive me. Well, uh, you know, how, you know, how must I say it? And, you know, and, and now you get, you're arguing over forgiveness, you know, it's, it's, and at some point you just have to say, I forgive you. And, and especially if it is uh, petty or small or, um, uh, and the, the key is, I think Philippians two, three, and four. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. And so when you're sitting there and you're saying, you're asking this question, should I forgive this person unilaterally and unconditionally? Another way of saying that is, should I just let love cover this over? Um, Or should I confront them on it? The question is, what would be best for the other person? This is not about you. This is not about vindicating yourself. This is about helping a brother or sister with an issue that they have. And so uh, in one, uh, one way you could say this is step number one is confront. Step number two is forgive. But sometimes you can jump to step number two right away, skipping step number one. You don't always have to rebuke. And we see examples of that in Scripture. Uh, in Mark eleven twenty five, we have an example uh, of confronting. It says in Mark eleven uh, verse um, twenty five. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who's in heaven forgive your, your transgressions. So this is an example, sorry, of, of, I think, unilateral, unconditional forgiveness. The person is standing there praying. They realize that there's an all-inclusive state, statement there. If you have anything against anyone, I'm standing, I'm coming before a holy God, I'm praying, I'm worshiping, and I realize that somebody has wronged me. In this case, I can forgive them 
unconditionally and unilaterally while I'm standing there praying. This is why I think because the language here uses forgiveness, but it sounds a lot like covering it over because it's not transactional. And yet in, in, Mark, um, in Mark 10, I think it's Mark 10, 20, uh, sorry, in um, Matthew 5.23, Matthew 5.23, we have a similar instruction, but note the difference. Um, Matthew 5, verse 23, it says, um, sorry, um, I'm looking for, I think it's in Matthew 5. It's where, it's where um, our Lord said that if, you have, um, uh, if, you, if you're standing at the altar praying and you uh, go and first be reconciled to your brother. 24. You see how close you can be and be so wrong. Um, yeah, so, um, oh yeah, so, yeah, Matthew 5, 23. Well, okay, I, I, my mistake is I thought I was wrong. Forgive me. <laughs> Matthew 5.23, Therefore, if you are presenting your, altar, your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar. Go first be reconciled to your brother and then come present your offering. So again, the person is, is worshiping God. They realize they have something against their brother or the brother has something against them. They need to go be reconciled. So how do you reconcile those two passages? They're two different instructions. The way I reconcile them is sometimes you must confront and other times you must overlook. And the key is what would be best for the other person. So the Bible teaches both of those realities. Forgiveness can be unconditional and unilateral. It also can involve a confrontation, a willingness to forgive, and the granting of forgiveness if the person repents. So it's transactional and conditional. Sometimes it's conditional, sometimes it's unconditional. I want to stop there and open up for questions because I've given a lot of definitions. We've walked around just a couple other passages. I'm trying to be clear, but I know I can always be clearer. Yes? Right, right. Okay, so that's what that, and that's so good. I'm so glad you asked that question. His question is, I've heard in the past that you forgive someone, but keep your distance from them. That's not really forgiveness. And that brings a new term into our definitions because we've had this idea of harboring bitterness, which we know is wrong. We have this idea of being willing to forgive, which we know is right. We have this idea of anger, which most all the time, that, in fact, every time that I can remember me being angry, it's been involved sin. My wife's nodding her head yes. So then, uh, and then um, it's nice to see the audience agreeing. So, and then, and then uh, the, uh, we have the granting of forgiveness, which is instantaneous one-time event. It's not a process. But there is the process of reconciliation. And reconciliation can be uh, instantaneous and a one-time event. You can be reconciled immediately. Or it can be a process. Um, and oftentimes for us, it is a process. Because when you are sinned against, and even though the person 
ask for forgiveness, there are sometimes consequences for those sins. And those consequences sometimes have long-lasting ramifications. Let's talk about what reconciliation is. Who can tell me what reconciliation is? How do we define reconciliation? Yes. Restoring your relationship to where it was or even better. Okay, restoring your relationship to where it was or even better. So I'm going to pick it apart just a little bit to help us get it. It's, it's a good definition. It's, it's probably my definition. I probably said that. But, um, but um, I think there is a difference between re- restoration and reconciliation. And it's a, it's a, it's a small uh, difference. Restoration means that there was a good relationship to begin with and that it turned bad and you're able to restore it to where it was before. Somebody restores an old car Man, it looks just like it was 1932, right? I mean, everything on it looks like it's on the showroom lot. That's a restoration, right? To reconcile, the, the Greek word for reconcile actually means to exchange. And so it's to exchange a bad relationship for a good relationship. And so it may be a different relationship than you had before, but you're exchanging a bad relationship for a good relationship, which means you never, you didn't necessarily have to have a good relationship to begin with. You could have started off with a bad relationship, but once you are reconciled, you've now exchanged the bad relationship for a good relationship. And the reason I say that it can be a process, and I've used this example before when I've taught on this before, but I can't think of a better one to use, so I'm going to share with you, but this is, this is, um, uh, an extreme example of what reconciliation might look like. Suppose that you had uh, an, an uncle who used to come to your house once a year at Christmas, and that was pretty much your, your involvement with him. You'd, you maybe talked to him on the phone on his birthday or something like that, but once a year at Christmas, this uncle would come and, and visit your home. And one year after he leaves, you find out from one of your children that he abused your child. And let's just say it was physical abuse. Let's just say it was uh, anger. He, he bruised your child or something like that. He hit your child. Or, I don't know what it was. But let's say it was criminal. It was wrong. All right. Um, and, uh, and so you are naturally upset. Your child has been abused by someone you trusted. So you've lost trust with this person. And let's say you go to them and they confess. And let's say that they ask for your forgiveness. You have to be willing to forgive, right? Let's say that, now first of all, it's against the law to physically abuse a child. So true repentance is always repentance before all offended parties. I can't rob a bank, confess to my wife, and say, where do you want to spend the money? (laughs) Right? That's not true repentance. There is such a thing as false repentance, but true repentance is repentance before all offended parties. And so if, if this person is really repentant of their sin, they will go to the police and file a report against themselves and confess their sin to the police because they've committed a crime. All right? And let's just say, say that the police open a case and that the person is prosecuted and they're put in jail, let's say, for eight years. Okay? Now... Your family's relieved. Your kids feel safer. Justice seems to have been, um, you know, handled. Your your wife is still pretty shaken, but you get this letter from prison. Hey, I just want to let you know I've come to faith in Christ. I've seen my sin. I'm disgusted by it. I, I know I've asked for forgiveness, but as a brother, I still want you to forgive me. 
So how do you respond? You've got to be willing to forgive. So you write back, say, listen, I do forgive you. Obviously, things are different. I know that you're in prison. You have consequences, but I don't know what they're going to look like when you get out. Maybe once or twice over those eight years, you visit him in prison, and maybe it's hard for you. But maybe you affirm that you, that you care about him and, and that you're glad to see that he's repentant. He gets out, and he wants to know if he can come to Christmas. And you say, I'm sorry. We just, we're just not ready. Um, we want to be reconciled with you, but perhaps this year, instead of you coming for Christmas, what if I meet with you at Denny's on the 23rd and we have pancakes together and just, just you and I, and that'll be our Christmas. He says, okay. So you go there, you have a conversation with him and let's say for another eight years, you, you are amazed each year. You come back to your wife and you say, I can't believe who this guy is. He is so different than he used to be. And God is doing so much in his life. It's amazing. It's amazing to see it. And and let's say after eight years, she comes with you. And maybe it's another five years that she comes with you to Denny's on the 23rd every year. And she first dreads it. But after five years, so it's 13 years after he's been let out of jail, 20, I don't know what the math is, 21 years total after the event, okay? And you're driving home from Denny's and your wife says to you, you know, this is the first time I've met with him in 21 years or thought about him where I haven't thought about that event and where I really am amazed at what God can do. That's reconciliation. It's a different relationship. It looks different. It's not the same place. It's not around the same people necessarily. Uh, The children are, you know, they'd have to have their own way of dealing with it. Um, but it, it, it would be called reconciliation. I would call that reconciliation. So it may be a process. And I think one of the weaknesses when we go through difficult times is that we don't, we don't actually lay out, once we've forgiven, measurable steps towards reconciliation. And that's all from your question. That's all from your question on, on your question was, because, because I, I get it. There are some people who are like, I forgive you, I just don't want anything to do with you ever again. And that goes totally contrary to the body of Christ. And there's a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which talks about not cutting off another member of the body. And you can try and justify it. You can say, listen, there's lots of people at church I don't talk to. What's the deal? I don't have a problem not talking to you. You know, why why do you think we need to talk? Well, it's because you don't talk to them because you never met them. But we were brothers. We are brothers. We had a relationship. We, I asked for forgiveness. You granted it. So what does reconciliation look like? And I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to rebuild trust unless you're willing to spend some time with me. Yes, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. If they don't repent, that's a great question. And wow, I, I know what we're pre- teaching on next week, I think. Because uh, it's, it's 9.55 and I got a race to get to. But um, so uh, uh, this is a great question. Uh, if the person doesn't repent. So if, you were to ask, if I were to start off this by saying, is it ever okay to withhold forgiveness from someone else? Most of you would say, no, it's never okay. But it is okay if you define forgiveness as promising never to bring it up again to make them smell their sin. Because 
you always, that's why I defined the willingness to forgive separately from forgiveness. Because if you confront someone and you say, listen, I've seen this in your life. This is not easy for me to say, but I, I really I care about you. I, I, want, I want you to, uh, to grow in this. And they say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I didn't steal your bike. That was my bike, right? And you're, you're, you're a goofball for even bringing this up, right? Well, you're not going to say, oh, I forgive you right? Because they're going to say, for what? I didn't do anything wrong. Your forgiveness means nothing. And so, and an example of that is the, the passage just before, and we'll read this. This will be the passage just before what, what uh, is going to be preached on in, in the main service. In Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, it says this, um, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's step one, right? That's the rebuke, okay? Just between the two of you, okay? But if he does not listen to you, tell him you forgive him. No, that's not what it says. It says, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So you go back to him and say, listen, I know I came to you last time. I know it didn't go well. I know you didn't really appreciate what I've said. I'm bringing someone else with me, some, a mutual friend of ours. I haven't told them about our previous conversation. I just asked them to be here as a witness. I asked them to see, because we're missing each other, obviously, and maybe it's me. And if it's me, I want them to tell me. So I'm coming to you. I'm, I'm uh, coming to you in love, and uh, I'm going to bring this up again. You stole my bike, okay, or whatever it is, right? And then they say, it wasn't your bike, it was my bike. You know, so, so now you've got somebody else here who clearly can, can maybe with some discernment look in there. And, and, if they, and it, says, it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be used as a Gentile or a tax collector. And so we have this idea of, of uh, um, really confronting someone. And if they still don't repent, it goes before the whole church and say, this person is bound to their sin. It actually speaks about that, uses that kind of language in verse 18. Uh, Truly I say to you, whether you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is not about demons, all right? And this is, the context here is not about, um, you know, book binding or spiral bound or whatever. It's, it's, it's and, and actually the tense here, it's a, it's a perfect passive, whatever... Whatever future passive, uh, whatever will have been bound on earth, whatever is bound on earth will have been bound in heaven. So that the whole tense of the passage, when you look at the grammar of it, is not saying that you declare it and now heaven agrees with you. It's you're declaring it and heaven has already declared it. You're in agreement with heaven. Um, verse 19, again, I say to you, if two or three on earth, uh, uh, if, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask it shall be done for them. My Father in whose heaven, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. This is not about the church meeting where only two or three people come and say, well, Jesus is here. Jesus is here if you're alone because you don't need a quorum for Jesus. This is a special way the two or three here are the ones who have been witnesses and have seen that there's no repentance. My first year as a pastor we disciplined three young men out of the church, and later two of them came back 
and were restored to fellowship and stood before the church and thanked them for the way that they dealt with their sin. This is what should be happening in churches. And so that's, 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 that's when we, we don't grant forgiveness if there is no repentance when we have confronted them and it's evidenced by other people and by the church. Okay, that's the process. So, yes, last question. So if a person does not repent of their sin and you've confronted them, all right, the question is, can you cover it over with love? Some of that depends on what would be best for them, right? You've confronted them. You've already believed that it would be best for them to see their sin. So it's probably better to go to them with one or two others in love. Try not to be intimidating. Try not, I'm not trying to hear it. This isn't about me being right, you being wrong. This is really about me trying to help you and our fellowship in the body of Christ. If they're an unbeliever, you can only go so far because this is for believers. It's a brother. Both these passages, Matthew 18, Luke 17, clearly state if a brother. So, yeah. Uh, Unbelievers, you can start this, but until they see their sin and repent, they really won't understand what true repentance or true forgiveness is. Okay? So in that case, you're evangelistic. That's what it means to treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Nobody here works for the IRS today, right? So it's not that you're ugly to them. Oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. Hey. Can we talk before April 15th? Um, so uh, it's, not, it's not that you treat tax collectors rudely, even though tax collectors were sinful in the Roman era because they had betrayed their people. And they, their whole livelihood was based off of greed and, and, and extortion. So, but that's a different story. He's, it's evangelistic. They're obviously, the, the, the tragedy is you no longer have that sweet fellowship that you used to have. And that's what we want. That's the goal. The goal is restoration or reconciliation, rather. All right. Those are great questions. I'm out of time because we're going to sing. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have the worship team come up. Father God... Grateful we are, grateful for your word. Thank you for these questions. Thank you for the opportunity just to jump into this. I pray, Lord, even as next week we come back to this and we we just refresh our own minds about the importance of right relationships among the body of Christ and right relationships with you. So we pray that you'll use this for your own glory and your namesake. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.